0: Make sure I'm on. Yeah, now the Gospel of John. The Gospel of John, and now we we come to chapter two. John chapter two, and the wedding at Cana. Let Can me read the words of John chapter two, verses one through twelve. You hear the word of the Lord. On the third day, there was a wedding in Cana of Galilee, and the mother of Jesus was there. Now both Jesus and his disciples were invited to the wedding. And when they ran out of wine, the mother of Jesus said to him, they have no wine. Jesus said to her, woman, what does your concern have to do with me? My hour has not yet come. His mother said to the servant, whatever he says to you, do it. Now there were set there six water pots of stone, according to the manner of purification of the Jews, containing 20 or 30 gallons apiece. Jesus said to them, fill the water pots with water, and they filled them up to the brim. And he said to them, draw some out now and take it to the master of the feast. And they took it. And manifested his glory. And his disciples believed in him. After this, he went down to Capernaum. He, his mother, his brothers, and his disciples. And they did not stay there many days. Amen. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you again for the opportunity of gathering together with your people, Lord, to uh, hear your word preached. I ask now that you would be here, Lord, uh, by your Spirit. Grant me aid. Help me, Lord, to declare your truth from this text for the edification of your people. Help your people listen, Lord. Help them hear and understand and apply these things. And may those who are here who do not believe, Lord, may they come to believe in the Son of God. In his name we pray. Amen. Now, if you have spent any time studying John chapter 2 and this particular miracle, I think, uh, I think I read 20 commentaries, and they all say a bunch of things about this miracle, allegories and all such things, and I listened to a bunch of sermons at least seven or eight, good preachers. I was edified, but they say all kinds of things about John chapter 2. So you'll hear things like this, and not, this is not all wrong, but I think it it kind of hovers over the direct meaning of the passage. So they'll say things like this. Uh, John chapter 2 is really Jesus putting his sign, his seal upon weddings, And marriage, and what Jesus wants to do here by appearing at this marriage is he wants to solemnize, 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 solemnize—that's the word—solemnize marriage and show how important marriage is. And uh, he shows up, right? And he's there. So he—he's Jesus doesn't have any beef with getting married. So if you want to get married, you're free, Jesus. But that's not the point of this passage, right? You could go to Genesis where God makes man and woman, and there you got your text. You don't have to go here. That's not the main point. It's it's there, but it's not the main point of the passage. Others go to this passage to either prove or disprove that you could drink alcohol. right? So Jesus made wine, the people drunk, we could drink. And look what it says. It actually says that they had well drunk, which means they drunk a lot. So we could drink. Others go to this passage and say, no, 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 no. You see, because in uh, back then, you couldn't drink the water, right? So if you, like, went to a well, and, you, you, you know, you couldn't drink the water, so they would make this fermented mix so that, uh, you know, you wouldn't get sick. So he's not really making wine wine. This is more like a juice, you know, which is... That is not the point of this passage, but, you know, uh, two chapters later, there's a woman at the well saying that her and her family have drunk from this well for years. And there's places in the Bible where people drink water and there were aquifers and people drank water, right? People drank water. They didn't drink wine in substitute for water. Now, you know, uh, wherever um, I think the Bible is clear to address that particular point that um, drunkenness is a sin. The Bible makes that very clear being drunk or getting drunk is a sin. Being a drunk is a sin. Kind of two different things, right? Like being a drunk is somebody, I'm drunk all the time, right? There's not a day where I'm not, that's being a drunk. And now getting drunk is a sin. And multiple places we can go to, but it's clear, that's a sin. Having alcohol is not a sin. Now there are people who might struggle with that issue, either because they were alcoholics or uninformed consciences, right? And we would never want to put a stumbling block before you, right? So if you abstain for conscience sake or because of past sins, well, amen. Praise God for that. But that's not the point of this passage. That's not what Jesus is. That's not the point of the text. Now now consider some things here. So... so, so uh, uh, kind of a Bible study approach, right? What are some of the the things that you would expect, right? So if the point was the wedding, right, what would you hear about? The bride, right? There's no, who, where, right? You don't, they, they don't tell you what her dress looked like, what the bridesmaid wore, the flower, the arrangements. You get none of that information. The bridegroom, Right, you, you 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 know, the the husband he kind of doesn't matter really in the wedding too much, you know. But you know, <laughs> that's why that's well. Anyway, I was going to make a joke, but I won't. So, uh, but uh, so, but but we don't really know anything about the bridegroom. We don't know we don't know why Jesus was invited, and his family. We, we don't have any of those details. So it's almost the 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 story, which is historical, it really happened. Jesus actually did this miracle. Is almost like a, like a blank slate, and John points out specific facts. He brings specific things to our attention that if you were at the wedding, you wouldn't have noticed, right? Um, so uh, let's look at some of it. now. Okay, so you have that, and then you have the structure of the passage, right? So there's content when you're trying to interpret a passage, and then there's the structure of the thing. So how's it put together? Look at verse one. On the third day, there's a sequence here, and we've seen it really. It began in chapter one, verse um, uh, uh, twenty-nine. In chapter one, twenty-nine, we see this: uh, the next day. In verse 35 of chapter 1, and again, the next day. And you have this continual flow. Verse 43, the following day. And now in chapter 2, on the third day. Now people, uh, uh, they add this up, and they say this is the first week of Jesus' ministry. The, The time stamp is important, Right? Three days, three days, more than likely three days after his interaction with Nathanael. Three days after this. At least that much we can say. Now, uh, in chapter 2, I want you to hear what he says to the Pharisees as he's speaking to them, to the Jews, the religious leaders. Jesus says to them in verse 19, Jesus answered and said to them, Destroy this temple, and in three days I will raise it up. So you, so the chapter sort of begins with this indication three days later, and now Jesus brings up the point of three, his resurrection. Okay, so that's one thing. On a, on a, so, so that's the, the whole chapter. Now look at verse 1. On the third day, there was a wedding in Cana of Galilee, and the mother of Jesus was there. Right, so, so, so they come into Cana of Galilee. They're coming from Capernaum. Look at how verse 12 ends. After this, he went down to Capernaum, he, his mother, his brothers, and his disciples, and they did not stay there many days. So you have him coming into Cana, And then he's leaving Cana of Galilee. Verse 13, he's in Jerusalem at the temple. And now look at the last verse. Uh, Excuse me, verse 23. Now when Jesus was in Jerusalem at the Passover during the feast, many believed in his name when they saw the sign. Uh, Yes, when they saw the sign which he had done, but Jesus did not commit himself to them because he knew all men and had no need that any should testify of man, for he knew what was in man. That takes us back to, so, so in chapters, uh, excuse me, in 12, 1 through 12, it's bracketed by him going into Cana of Galilee and him coming back out. He enters the temple, and uh, remember, the temple was the place where God met with men, that, that's where they went to offer all of their sacrifice. That's where they went to do all of their religious duties. And when the chapter ends, we have this indication um, uh, that Jesus did not tr- entrust himself to men because he knew what was in man. Does any of that sound familiar? When he's speaking to Nathanael, he knew what was in Nathaniel. He walks up to Nathanael and he says, ah, an Israelite in word and in deed. He knew who he was not only that, he uses that imagery from the vision that Jacob received, and he says that I am the place where God meets with man. I'm the ladder. I'm, I'm the ladder to heaven. And when he says that to Nathaniel, he says these words. In verse 50 of chapter 1. Jesus answered and said to him, Because I said to you, I saw you under the fig tree. Do you believe? You will see greater things, things than these. And he said to him, "Most assuredly, I say to you, hereafter you shall see heaven open, and the angels of God ascending and descending on the Son of Man." So he says to Nathaniel, "You're going to see things that are greater than me just te- than." the fact that I indicated that I know you were doing something under the fig tree, praying, reading the scriptures, uh, seeking God's face, whatever it was that he was doing. So uh, these things are all connected. There's no coincidences here. And now look to highlight this. Back to John chapter 2, verse 1. On the third day, there was a wedding in Cana of Galilee. That location is... Very, very important. Cana of Galilee is where Jesus heals a nobleman's son in John 4, 46. Uh, Turn there, and we'll just just look at that briefly. Look at John 4, and uh, beginning at verse 46. So Jesus came again to Cana of Galilee. Where he had made water, where he had made the water wine, and there, uh, uh, yes, and there was a certain nobleman whose son was sick at Capernaum. When he had heard that Jesus had come out of Galilee in, uh, in, uh, excuse, out of Judea, into Galilee, he went to him and implored him to come to heal his son, for he was at the point of death. and Jesus heals the young man, okay? That's one. Now, uh, there is another reference that's important um, with regards to Cana of Galilee. And that is in chapter uh, 21. Look at chapter 21, verse 2. John 21, verse 2. I'll read from verse 1. John chapter 21. After these things, Jesus showed himself again to his disciples. This is after the resurrection at the Sea of Tiberias. And in this way, he showed himself. Simon Peter, Thomas called the twin, Nathanael of Cana in Galilee. What did he say to Nathanael? This is where Nathanael's from. Nathanael's from Cana in Galilee. And Jesus said to him, you're going to see much greater things. He sees water turned to wine. He also sees this young man who is dying healed. Jesus was making the point to Nathanael that you will see me manifest my glory. That's what you're going to see. You will see the glory of God. That's the point he was making to Nathanael. So you have, first and foremost, this the number three. And um, I don't think there's anything like, you know, I don't do Bible numerology, right? So that's not what I'm saying. What I'm saying is the way that the text is structured. John is an intentional writer, and he's bracketing the passage almost as bookends to show us that these two parts of the chapter, making wine and the cleansing of the temple, they go together. Yet, verses 1 through 12, it's its own section. And he shows this by the travel, right? Going in, coming back out of the land. But he connects it back again with this, the beginning of Jesus' ministry, which was introduced by John the Baptist by marking the day and, and three days after. This is all connected, and John wants us to read these things together. Jesus manifests his glory by turning water into wine. And there is a connection to the cleansing of the temple and pots for purification. So let's see what it is. Let's see what this connection is. So that's just Bible study stuff, right? Right. And Technically, you shouldn't count that against me as part of the sermon that's like just preparation stuff, you know? But anyways, so that, that's that, that's sort of the, the, the structure, and th- that's the connection, I think. Nathaniel and the other disciples are going to see Jesus display his glory, and it has specifically to do with cleansing, with r- the ritualistic cleansing of the Pharisees and the cleansing of the temple. Because the only way to God, the only way to be cleansed is through the Lamb of God that takes away the sins of the world. And remember, that's connected to this entire week of Jesus' ministry because that's what John was heralding when Jesus appeared. All of these things are connected. But now let's take a look at the passage. Because most of you are probably sitting here, especially if you have kids or have had kids and are wondering why would he call his mother woman? Is probably your, your main concern, <laughs> so let's get to the text now on the third day when there was a wedding in Cana of Galilee and the mother of Jesus and the mother of Jesus was there. Now both Jesus and his disciples were invited to the wedding, and when they had run out of wine, the mother of Jesus said to him, "They have no wine." Now this would have been great a great embarrassment for the bridegroom. We don't know the relationships. Why was Jesus and his disciples, why were they invited? Why does Jesus' mother have a prominent place? We don't know any of those things. But the point that's brought up is there, there's a, a crisis here. We're going to have a big problem. The Jewish weddings, were, were, uh, they, they're very different from the way that we celebrate weddings. This would have been probably a week long. It was paid for by the, by the spouse, by the bridegroom. He paid for everything. He'd pay for the wedding. And, you know, having three daughters, I think that's a good way to go about it. <laughs> but so he, he would pay for everything, and it really would be a week of festivity and celebration. Right? And uh, many people would be invited, and they would all come and rejoice and drink. But there were sort of like social contracts that you entered into when you were invited to weddings. So that if you showed up at the wedding and there wasn't enough food or drink, you could sue the bridegroom. (laughs) Because it was supposed to be a celebration. You took time off of work. And uh, you were were expecting uh, to rejoice, you know. Uh, So this crisis comes up. And there is no wine. And Jesus now, he says to his mother, he says, woman. What does your concern have to do with me? My hour has not yet come now that Jesus was being uh, disrespectful to his mother would just taking a step back and looking at the whole Bible where uh, the Bible is clear that you should honor your father and mother um, you know it, it's uh, impossible for that to have been the case. Jesus was not dishonouring his mother and really in a very uh in, At the moment right before his death, he addresses her the same way. When when he entrusts her into John, the gospel writer's hands, and he says from the cross, woman, behold your son. So it's, it's not a term of disrespect. It may just have been a common way of addressing your mother at that point in time. But... It's not the expression woman that really should catch our attention. It tends to because who calls their mom woman and lives. (laughs) But it's this next expression that's difficult to translate. What does your concern have to do with me? Now, it's used... Uh, in several places throughout the bible this uh this same expression and uh look at it in uh, luke chapter 2 in luke chapter 2 verse 49 excuse me that's that's uh that's coming later that's not it it's um, um it's in uh, excuse me second samuel 9 22 second samuel 1922 In 2 Samuel 19.22, David uses a very similar expression. David says this. And remember, uh, David is being cursed now. This is after uh, Absalom's sin, and he's leaving, and um, he's being cursed. And one of his men says, do you want me to go kill this guy, David? And David says, what have I to do with you? And this really has to do with perspective, your your manner of thinking. So that as we go back to John's gospel, really, what Jesus is saying to his mother is that the way that you are thinking about me is not the way that you ought to be thinking about me. She addresses him as her son, and he was her son. And you could imagine a commentator's uh, pastors, theologians, they bring this up. Uh, Jesus' father must have died when he was relatively young, and being the firstborn, the oldest, he was the man of the house. So naturally, what's his mother's natural inclination? I'm going to go talk to my son and figure this out. And every time she, w- one pastor noted that every time she went to him, he always had a good idea. It's not like he ever had a bad idea. So whenever there was a problem, she would go to Jesus. He'd say, well, try this. And she'd do it and say, Man, he's done it again. So, but Jesus, so she comes to him as her son, and he addresses her as her Lord. Because what she is asking him to do, particularly, has to do with a public display of his power and entrance into his formal ministry. You, do you remember? Um, Simeon, the old man who's in the temple, what he says to Mary with regards to Jesus, he says that a sword is going to pierce you. Right, you are going to be absolutely heartbroken and devastated. I'm interpreting Simeon. You're going to be absolutely heartbroken, and and um, when you see your son crucified. Jesus is saying to her, we're not thinking about things the same way here. My ministry is not just to, to uh, provide for people in this particular way. I've come to do much more and much greater things. Remember, this is uh, the passage from Luke 2.49. Remember when he was in the temple, right? They, they go up for the feast. His parents kind of lose track of him. And Jesus, the child scholar, is there debating with, not debating, but asking questions of the religious leaders. And when they finally found him, um, they said, hey, what, what's going on? You know, 10, 12-year-old Jesus, what, what, what are you doing here? And he says, why did you seek me? Did you not know that I must be about my father's business? It's, it's not a disrespectful interaction with his mother. But what Jesus is doing is he is indicating and he is making it very clear that I am your son, but I am your Lord. And then he says this, my hour has not yet come. The reason he he, he says this is because when Jesus... Um, When Jesus begins to display openly that he is the Messiah, the religious leaders want to kill him. It starts right away. Uh, We can apply this. Religious hypocrites hate true believers. Religious hypocrites hate true believers. They can't stand it. Because uh, darkness hates the light. They want nothing to do with it. And Jesus was a light, burning bright, like the sun. And the, the the religious leaders, they they you know, they were like Gollum, right? They found their precious, right, which was their rule and reign over the Jewish people. And they had grown to hate the sun. So, what did they want to do? They wanted to to be in the darkness. They hated the sun. They hated the light. And Christ, by means of his works, was now displaying his sovereign sovereign prerogative and power as the Messiah. And he was going to come and take the vineyard that belonged to his father. So they wanted to kill him. That's why Jesus says this about his hour. My hour has not yet come, and the hour is very important. So <clears throat> in chapter 7, verse 6, look at how Jesus refers to this. Let's look at the context there. Jesus' hour, his hour, 7, 6. <clears throat> and this is his brothers. Remember, his brothers are here with him in chapter 2, Um when they leave, at, at the, uh, verse 12, and his brothers say to him, hey, there, there's this big, big feast going on. Why don't you go up there and show everybody who you really are? And they said this because they didn't really believe in him. It, um, I think with his brothers, more than anything else, you see that true conversion is not biological. Right, They were his half-brothers. He was the Son of God. Right, The Holy Spirit overshadowed Mary, and this thing that is born in you will be holy, the Son of God. So they were his half-brothers, you could say. <clears throat> Jesus never sinned around them because he was sinless. In all of his interactions with his siblings, he was righteous. He displayed mercy, humility. Justice, it, it it would have been uh, like unbearable, right for the, for most people, because we don't know what that kind of like th- that attitude is really like. Yet his brothers didn't believe who he was, and he lived with them. So so you know if, um, if Christians tend t- to acknowledge that God saves people. God save my son, save my daughter. But when you bring up the fact that you know you might not be converted or your kids might not be converted just because you come from a Christian family, people get offended. But more than anything else, this these passages highlight the fact that it's not biological. The spirit works as he wills and he imparts life to whom he wills. Something that we have to remember. But the point then Jesus says, I'm not going to go up there and do a a bunch of signs and miracles and reveal myself to, to the people. Why? Because my time has not yet come. That's why. It's not my time yet. And he goes up anyways in secret afterwards. He preaches to the people, does no miracles. And in verse 30, they sought to take him, but no one laid hands on him because it was not his hour yet. He was coming to that hour. Jesus almost uh, is alluding to Ecclesiastes, right? To everything, there is a season, a time for every purpose under heaven. And Jesus knew that his time had not yet fully come. In chapter 8, verse 20, Jesus speaks in the treasury, he teaches in the temple, and no one laid hands on him. Why? Because his hour had not yet come. It wasn't time yet. Yet, in chapter 12 now, and remember, beginning at chapter 12, the book sort of divides, and he goes into his private ministry, and he's spending time with his disciples before his crucifixion, and he says to them, the hour has come that the Son of Man should be glorified. Wasn't he glorified when they saw the miracles? Those were cumulative. They were giving glimpses of who the Son of God is, of who the Messiah is. There were small pictures, snippets, and as each one unfolds, it reveals more and more of who Christ is. And now he says the hour has come that the Son of Man should be glorified. In chapter 3, verse 1, he's washing the disciples' feet, and we hear these words, Now before the, before the Feast of the Passover, when Jesus knew that his hour had come, and now something is added, and that he should depart from this world to the Father, having loved his own who were in the world, he loved them to the end. The hour of Christ, the point where He is going to be glorified, is where He displays His love for His people to the fullest. That is uh, one example, uh, one way to understand the cross. The cross is the glorification of Christ. Why? Because it is the revelation of His love for sinners. God is exalting his love for the unlovable by dying for them. Christ comes into the world to save sinners. As the, hour, you know, as the hour gets closer, the point of his glorification is going to come closer and closer where he will die and his glory will be revealed. Of course, this is all in conjunction with his resurrection and ascension to the Father. But this is a manifestation of his love, of his love for his people, as he reveals himself to them. Back to John chapter 2. Jesus said to her, Woman, what does your concern have to do with me? My hour has not yet come. And You would think that this kind of rebuff would maybe uh, push his mother away, but it doesn't at all. The rebuff does not um, push his mother away at all. What it does, it it displays her faith in her son. Jesus does this often. Uh, Look at Matthew chapter 15. If you turn to Matthew, Matthew chapter 15, um, Jesus is going to heal a Gentile woman's daughter, beginning at verse uh, 21. And uh, so this woman comes, a woman from Canaan, uh, and she's crying, Have mercy on me, Lord. Son of David, my daughter is severely demon-possessed. But he doesn't say anything to her. He doesn't respond to her. And she's crying out for mercy. And then his disciples tell him, "At least tell her to leave, because she's bothering like she's bothering. She's making a, a public a spectacle, right, begging you to heal her daughter, and you're not even talking to her. Tell her to leave." And he says to her, "I was sent not I, excuse me, I was not sent except to the lost sheep of the house of Israel." That's, that's where I was sent. What what's Jesus doing there? What Jesus is doing there is similar, I think, to what he does to his mother, which is he's challenging her faith. What is this woman going to do? Oh, he only came for the Jews. All right, then I'll just let my daughter die. Oh, huh. not at all. Then she came and worshipped him, saying, "Help me!" Right? It it show, the, the 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 persevering nature of faith when we pray, and it. The, God, or we make a request, and it appears like the Lord is not answering. What do you do? Do you just say, well, he's not going to answer the prayer? No, she continues. She worshipped him. And he said, it is not good to take the children's bread and throw it to the little dogs. And... She said, yes, Lord. Yet even the little dogs eat the crumbs which fall from their master's table. And she presses them even harder. She says, I need my daughter healed. I know you can heal her. I believe in you. So she presses the point. Generally, when Jesus rebuffs people this way in the Gospels, what he's doing is to test faith. O oh, woman, great is your faith. You see, not a rebuff there. He's not. He's not right. He uses the same expression he did with his mother. O oh, woman, great is your faith. Let it be to you as you desire. And her daughter was healed from that very hour. So, so when Mary hears this, she's she's not rebuffed at all by Jesus. Listen to what she says. Whatever he says to you, do it. So. He tells her we're not thinking about things the same way, you know, with regards to my ministry and my mission. But he addresses her as her Lord, and then she responds in kind. Submission to her son. Sort of, we don't know what what her part was. She may have had a part in the wedding, sort of as a hostess of the wedding. That's why she knew what was going on. And now what she does is basically take a step back and just whatever he tells you to do, do it. I'm not in charge. And really in her doing that, she's displaying Christ's lordship. This really tells a lie of all of Catholicism with their Mariolatry. Worship of Mary, intercession of Mary, all of these things, absolute nonsense. Jesus was her Lord. She was subject to him. And our requests come to him and not to her in any way. Now there were sit, set there six water pots of stone, according to the manner of purification of the Jews, containing 20 to 30 gallons apiece. It was a lot of water, right? And these things were full up to the top. And now you have this wedding, right? A, a wedding celebration. And what, what is there supposed to be? Well, joy, laughter. Uh, the people were supposed to be uh, rejoicing in everything that was happening but what did they have to do before they came into the wedding take water wash probably wash your feet right you go over to grab something to drink what do you have to do oh i got to go get wash my hands right you go get something to drink oh i got to and then when you leave right cuz you're there for a week you come back what are you constantly doing during the wedding you're not having it's not joyful you're you're constantly washing your hands you're involved in this uh Jewish tradition and there's really no no it's it's more of a chore than anything else this is what a false religion does this is exactly what it does it absolutely tortures people in, in times when we're, you're, you ought to be gathered together, rejoicing, the heart of the legalist is casting dispersion on everything that's happening. And God's people are absolutely oppressed. They hate it. Right? And this is exactly what was happening here. Now, the, 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 the wedding and these times of joy and rejoicing are being held captive to false religion. And what does Jesus do? Well, Jesus tells them, fill them up. Fill them with water and then draw some out and take it to the master of the feast. Jesus does this miracle, but he does it privately. He doesn't, right, there's no, he doesn't go over to the water pots, abracadabra, hocus pocus, right? He doesn't do the sign of the cross over it. He doesn't do any of that stuff, right? The water becomes wine. Uh, Very reminiscent, of course, of of, uh, creation, although in creation you have everything coming out of nothing. Here, Jesus addresses the water, and as one hymn writer wrote, the water saw her Lord and blushed. And not only was it wine, it was very good wine, as the master of the feast says. He fills the water pots. He draws them. And the governor speaks, and he says, oh, man, this is good. This is not the practice. This is not the common practice. Listen to his words. Verse 10, Every man at the beginning sets out the good wine, and when guests have well drunk, then the inferior... You have kept the good wine until now. Right? This is this is what generally what is done. What common practice was the best we have, we put it out. And then as that runs out, what we do is, you know, you add a little more water, you know. So Sundays, folks come over the house, you got your spread, you're eating, right? And then once the food is gone, Logan is eating chips out of the you know <laughs> Cause we're done, you know. There's no more. We're done. The pot roast is done, Logan. Go, you know. Go make a ham sandwich or something, you know. You should just start to, <laughs> you know, whatever. <laughs> the the meal, val the quality, descends pretty fast, and that's exactly what would happen here. But what Jesus does is he he reverses this. Not only does does he Use these instruments, and and, uh, a point from Mark that's important. uh, That that Jesus uh, look at Mark chapter seven. Um, In we'll read um, we'll read from verse four because you'll get an idea of how, from verse 3, I'm sorry. Well, let's read the whole thing, verse 1. Then the Pharisees and some of the scribes came together to him, having come from Jerusalem. Now when they saw some of his disciples eating bread with defiled, that is, with unwashed hands, they found fault. So you'd be at a wedding, you know, you're eating a sandwich, turkey, of course, because you're a Jew, you're eating a turkey sandwich, and they're like, oh, you didn't wash your They're making a fuss all the time, right? And it's not just a soft fuss, like, you know, when... Uh, but it was like you're sinning, right? What you're doing right now, we have this tradition. And if you don't live in accord with this tradition, you're not right with God. For the Pharisees, verse 3... And all the Jews do not eat unless they wash their hands in a special way, holding the tradition of the elders. When they come from the market, they do not eat unless they wash. And there are many other things which they had received and hold, like the washing of cups, pitchers, copper vessels, and couches. Right? It's, it's, um, that, that would have been absolutely oppressive. Then the Pharisees and scribes asked him, Why do your disciples not walk walk according to the tradition of the elders, but eat bread with unwashed hands? He answered and said to them, Well, did Isaiah prophesy of you hypocrites? As it is written, This people honors me with their lips, but their heart is far from me. And in vain they worship me, teaching as doctrines the commandments of men. Jesus took offense at this kind of... uh, of religion where it's just the form of the thing, right? Like, no, we, we, uh, yeah, we, we get together on, you know, every third Thursday to do a potluck and we get together on Mondays for prayer meeting and we come to church on Sunday and we look our best and we sit where we're supposed to sit and we stand when we stand and everything is the way that it's supposed to be. And that is sufficient, Jesus says, no, that's hypocrisy. And in vain they worship me, teaching as doctrines the commandments of men. For laying aside the commandment of God, you hold the tradition of men, the washing of pitchers and cups and many other such things. All too well you reject the commandment of God that you may keep your tradition. And he continues just scathing rebuke after scathing rebuke. For their hypocrisy. Because it's not what enters into a person, it's what comes out of the heart. That was the issue. And now, this wedding, which is supposed to be a time of rejoicing, is turned into another obstacle course, another religious obstacle, another thing to do. Imposing unrighteous standards upon God's people. And Jesus says no. And what he does is he makes it a time of rejoicing. So in chapter 2, if we continue, after, in verse 11, it says, This beginning of signs did Jesus in Galilee and manifested his glory. He is We don't know who the couple was, right? So it may not have been for them, but the manifestation of his glory is a display of his love for his people. It's a display of his love for his mother as his follower because she put the request in, right? And what does he do? He shows her, yeah, here's the wine. Not only does he do that for them, but the other disciples, they see. Look at verse 11 and manifested glory, and his disciples believed in him. This is not a full-orbed faith yet, but it's a growing faith, and that's why Jesus did it. And even for us today, as we see the way that Jesus attacks here, religious hypocrisy, because that's really the point. Jesus is attacking religious hypocrisy on really the social level. He's going to do it on the religious level in verses 13 and following. But on the social level, like issues of social decorum that are just encrusted with uh, man's righteousness. Like, oh yeah, we just don't do that. Why not? Because that's just not what we do. Well, Jesus says, um, uh, I was going to say something, but I won't say it. Jesus says, that is unrighteous. This beginning of signs, he manifested his glory and his disciples believed. After he went down to Capernaum, he, his mother, his brothers, and his disciples, and they did not stay there many days. Why? Because now Jesus' ministry is its full steam ahead. He performs his first miracle, and now it's time for his glory to be revealed. And what happens next is the Lord suddenly descends or enters into his temple, and he's going to see the religious hypocrisy of the Pharisees, and that's a doozy verses 12 and following. And we'll look at those next week. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word and we thank you for our Lord Christ, for his zeal, for your people, his love for them, and displaying his glory, showing them, Lord, that he is not bound and we are not bound by any religious traditions that oppress your people, Lord. We are to be bound to the scriptures, to your revealed word, Lord. In your word, we have life. Help us as a people, Lord, to grow in our knowledge and our love of the word and help us to be subject to this righteous king who has salvation and is lowly and meek of heart. In his name we pray, amen. Please stand and...